Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's conversation, former hitting intern Nick Askew and I talk with Chicago White Sox assistant hitting coordinator Ryan Johansson. If you like this conversation and you would like instant access to all of the roundtable conversations, you can join LPD+. There are more than 40 roundtable discussions already uploaded into LPD+, with coaches, with our on-floor trainers, with members of the community that you can listen to instantly right now. I will include the link to LPD Plus in the description below. If you haven't already subscribed to my YouTube channel, be sure to do that. Just go to YouTube, look up my name, Chad Longworth. You'll find fun energy drink reviews, bat reviews, bat battles. Um, We're just trying to display technology uh, and represent the difficulty of practice uh, in a fun and entertaining way. Just go to YouTube, look up my name, Chad Longworth. You'll find it there. Uh, Give it a share. Share it amongst your friends if you like what you see. Alright, you get you get to ask the first question, buddy. What twins faster, Black Panther or Captain America? Did you guess that? Uh, Captain America versus who? Who swings faster? Now, who who would win in a running race between Captain America and Black Panther? And so we we were going to do this with Dawes on Monday, but we had some scheduling conflict with Dawes. So I'll show you where the here. Let me share my screen. And I'll show and I'll show you the video. Marshall's been asking this question for about a week. <laughs> All right, you got it. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Oh, this is Infinity War. All right. What's the closest speed of Captain America? Look at this. Down the hill, into the river. There you go. Who will win in a race between? Captain America or Black Panther? There's a couple angles we could go with this. What do you think, buddy? Captain America. Captain America. Marsh thinks Captain America. Well, Kyle, well, Black Panther, by the way, I've been deciding and I'm trying to choose, but Black Panther's a panther and panthers are panther. fast. Well, well, we got a head start. He got a head start. He got a head start. You see, closest speech is Captain America. What do you think? I think I think Captain America in a sprint, and I think Black Panther in a, in something more long distance. So we 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 got to the to the conclusion Monday. Like, what if Black Panther starts running on all fours? That adds another element. Yeah, the game yeah. yeah. I also feel no, like I'm I also feel like Captain America is a little bit like the guy who who if he runs if you're running the sixty and he's running with another guy that runs seven one. He's gonna run like seven flat, but if he runs with a guy that's like running six six, he's gonna run like six five. He's got next guy speed. That's a great, a great point. Yeah, next guy speed. I like that. I like that. I feel like Captain America's got that. Seabiscuit was like that too, wasn't that? Uh, wasn't that one of the things with? I don't know. We've seen we've, we've seen Seabiscuit. I think I. Have. I don't think I have. I think Sea Biscuit was in my minor league DVD bus trip. To be honest with you, that had to have been around 2005. In your sweatpants and collared shirts. Sweatpants, collared shirts, and you had to carry the carry the case of DVDs with you with DVD player. Bye. You out? Are you gone? Is that all you wanted to ask? Yeah. Yeah. You got anything? You got anything else, Audrey? Yep. We're talking about grown-up stuff like Red Bulls and stuff. Um, You got anything you want to ask him? Um, Love asking his question. Yep. What do you got?
What do you got? Who's better, girls or boys? Who's better, girls or boys? Oh, come on, boys. <laughs> I mean, if, if, my wife's, if my wife's asking me, it's, it's definitely girls. So, I mean, you know, I'll just, just assume that, you know, that, that that's the case. Okay, we're going with girls. Good job, sis. Yes. <laughs> okay. I agree with you. You, tell, you tell Ryan how hard you throw? How hard I'm you on paper today or Just today? in general. What's your best? Where's Ryan? My best, 37. 37. Where's Ryan? 37. We got a deal on the table for four. Where's Ryan? He's in Chicago, I think. Are you in Chicago? Yeah, I'm, I'm in uh, I'm in the dumb time zone, according to you. That is correct. <laughs> yeah, I'm not in the right time zone. I'm in Here's Chicago. Two. What is the practical use of time zones? Well, there should uh, be two. One to the east of the Mississippi River and one to the west. Yeah, that'd be. I would say it's about right. I don't think the sun comes down really any that much later across the country. I mean, I've, What is the practical use in 2020 of daylight savings time? Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I think it's to keep the calendars. And like some states have it, some states don't. Arizona, I think, is the only state that doesn't. So funny story about that because I was trying to figure out like what time it was when I first went down to Arizona. Why do we have to have like, all these zones? Yeah, so like sometimes like my family is two hours uh, ahead of me, and sometimes they're only one hour ahead of me. But I was like trying to figure out like what the time was, and I was like, no, it was daylight savings time. I was like, how does Arizona not have this? And so they started daylight savings time. They did it. And then they literally just were like, no, this sucks and stopped. So Arizona yeah, doesn't really. have daylight savings time because they like decided not you know to do it. what else I like about Arizona? It doesn't get cold there, really. <laughs> got two things going for it that I don't like. Cold and daylight savings time. Seems like well, a place you just don't really like. I mean, not not cold. Like, you just don't like weather. So, you know, like. Yeah, most of it I do. Unless it's sunny. And 70 and with a slight breeze. <laughs> Be honest, though, I could go with hot. I just got to stay in the shade, man. I can't take, like, direct sunlight. It just is It just the hottest game I ever played. You ever been to Lakewood, New Jersey? Yeah, yeah. When was the last time you were there? Uh, the one time we played a game there, and it was remarkably hot. I mean, unbelievably hot. It's like kids' day. It's like kids' day I'm playing right field, and the kids' facade is – Right behind me. So there's like 14,000 kids behind me, and it's like 8,000 <laughs> degrees. And I'm like, man, I can't imagine hell would be much different than this. <laughs> um, yeah, so we went up there, and that was the nicest stadium. Like, it's in unbelievable. The Battle League right now. Because it, it started as a double-A stadium. They're like, ah, you can't put a double-A team there. So they're like, ah, we'll just put a low-A team. No big deal. So yeah, it's unbelievable. It's great. It's probably still unbelievable. It was hot that day, man. We ate popsicles in the tunnel. Yeesh. It was it was ridiculous. It was, I think it's the only tunnel. It's the only true tunnel to dugout in the Saddle League. Uh, yeah, I think you're right about that. Yep, I think you're definitely mm-hmm. right about that. From where I was, we pretty much South Sally League. Charleston might had. I think Charleston had a dugout really close too as well. I like Charleston. I yeah. like I like that stadium. It's kind of a dumpy town in West Virginia, but. That stadium was cool. I tried to. Oh, I was talking about South Carolina. Oh no, never been there. But I'm yeah, the, Virginia, the West Virginia Power. Yeah, uh, with the Toast Man. The Toast Man. I can't, we had a conversation about the Toast Man. Yeah, that was awesome. I think I was the. I so we could I could tell strikeout. I think we talked about my strikeout man stories before, but I was the strikeout man <laughs> in, in West Virginia, dude. I'm telling you, whenever I was a strikeout man, I was choking up for the first pitch and just putting her in play. Like, I wasn't, 
I wasn't. Just, just screw the fans over, Chad. Like, be about the fans one time, Al. Not going down, but I was a strikeout man that night. And I think I had a decent lengthy at bat and ended up striking out. And just, it was, I was miserable after that. <laughs> I mean, they were cheering for me, striking out all the way. The long walk back to the dugout, the toast man is throwing toast everywhere. And everybody got windshield wiper fluid. And it was just a good night in Charleston, West Virginia, because <laughs> I struck out. The craziest uh, ball I've ever like seen come back and play happened to that stadium. So this ball goes like, it looks like it's going out of the stadium, like down the right field line. Like yep. it's just, it's so foul, and it's over where that deck part is, um, yep. where that like party deck is, like next to next to right field. And I'm coaching first base. I'm like, that ball's out. Like whatever. Like I turn around, like completely sold this ball's out. The uh, the hitter is just standing in the box, like you know, like same thing. Like the ball, the ball should have been way out, of, well out of play. And this massive gust of wind comes, like just unreal. And brings this ball back in, and it just like falls like right on the line. The hitter standing there, and like I'm looking at the hitter, like what's going on? And, like our dugout yells, "Run!" Like I look behind me, and I'm like, "Oh no!" Like that's 100% my fault. Like I should have been like staring at the ball, like seeing it come back, like getting this guy, like making sure he's like running. <laughs> you but, uh, what's that? Did you have cleats on that night? I didn't have cleats on that night. No, not that <laughs> night. Yeah. It's a, it's a good story. I will say that the Reds third base coach was rocking cleats in spring training. I didn't feel quite as bad about myself. Oh, that is a phenomenal story. Bikes or molds? Oh, man. What's that, Nick? Bikes or molds? Spikes? Uh, no, he had, I guess he had molds on. Yeah. Yeah, to be, to be fair, he had molds on, but, you know. It's commitment still. Unique. Yeah. yeah. Commitment. Um, so, I told you we just spitball, which is what we've been doing so far. Yeah. Uh, I don't like time zones, and I don't because I can't figure out what time it is anywhere for anybody other than I'll tell you what time it is on the East Coast, and you just figure out the rest. I'm 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 good with that. I, I think I figured it out with all these Zoom calls, and yeah. I, when I did that, when I did that like three week series. And like all those people were on, and everybody was from different time zones. I kept having to put like Central Time, and I think I'm I think I finally figured out the time zones because of that. But I haven't done it in a while, so don't quiz me. Yeah, yeah. So, so I have you watched the Jordan doc? Yeah. So you have to have it. I just started. Like I flipped through the channels, and it was on TV here, and I'm like, I'm gonna kind of watch this, and so I'm watching it, and. I'm not bagging on Jordan's kids, but I think this is maybe a decent place we could kind of start the skill portion of this this conversation. What do you think? So everybody, everybody, it's an interesting, it's always an interesting thing when you talk about players and you talk about good players and how they came up and the environment they can you see me when I talk? I never know about these Zoom things because I'm looking at you. Yeah, I, yeah, we can see. I can see both you guys. I've got it like pulled up through. Okay. Anyway, so it's always an inch, and, and I talked about this with Garrett Boyum a little bit on his podcast. Was you know I think no, the thing you need to understand about the players you watch on TV is they're all these unique like interactions through time of you know their circumstances and the culture and the tasks that they presented with and the environment they grew up in and all these other things. And I'm watching this doc and it's so interesting. And Jordan's probably not the only guy, but like 
it's so interesting to see Jordan being such an assassin guy and then Jordan's kids. Like he had sons that like weren't very, you know, they weren't. He's the greatest player of all time. He's the greatest competitor of all time. Um, you know, we can we can diverge a little bit into LeBron too, but like his kids weren't that good. Like they weren't they weren't what he had. And so it's just interesting to me how the circumstances probably were way different of their upbringings and how genetics plays some role, but like how the environment is so much more important, I think. I, I would agree with that. You know, because Jordan's story, you know, he does, he, he, you know, in this doc, he, he makes grudges with like everybody, <laughs> you know, which is fine. Whatever you got to do to get out of bed in the morning. Um, but, you know, he, he doesn't make the varsity team. And then it's just always finding these little things to motivate you to, to do the work. And I'd say mm-hmm. his kids probably didn't have those same trials to push them along. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say that that's probably one of the um, things that he puts his cap on at the end of the night. I mean, I think he would give credit to that experience as um, – large contribution to who he became. And like you said, I think having those experiences as a kid, I know personally, I mean, I, and you know, my backstory, I mean, I didn't have things handed to me and uh, pushed me to um, strive for more and want more. You know, I've always said that like each, each player, and and we've talked about this, like you come to train with us and I have to talk you into being good. Like every day, what are you doing? Like, mm-hmm. why do I have, like, why do I have to talk you into being good every day? And to be honest, the first thing that came to my mind when you started that conversation, it was interest. A lot of times that I, I think that like, that's probably the first principle of motor learning is interest. Like if yeah. you're not interested, you, you can't learn that motor skill. Like it's just, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Or, or cu- curiosity, you know, curiosity or, interest or whatever it is like i think everybody probably starts there with like and i think that's been i mean i'm still I, it's hard to believe but like i'm still in you know struggling with baseball just because it's just because it's been it's just interesting to me like the the problem solving aspect of it is has always been interesting to me and i think you know it starts with interest but then along the way like like jordan uh you face these adversities that like push you along and they're thinking super yeah, it's, it's like player story. Yeah. It's like, it's just that search process, right? I mean, you looking for solutions to problems you're facing and you take this route and you find out it's a dead end. And so you have to um, reverse and, and if you don't love it. I mean, we talked about that. If you don't love it, if and that's the, like the stage one motor learning is like, if you don't love it, you're probably not going to continue to look for the answers as the, as the task and questions get harder later on, like in sure. the formidable uh, high school years, college years, beyond college and a pro. Like if you're not hungry, curious. Yeah, that's, I think that's why it's so important and should be the fundamental principle of um, long-term athletic development for someone onset to 19 is just make sure that they're smiling. Like that's victory. Like if not not to nineteen, but let's say like onset to like seven. Right? My kids like if they're smiling, you're doing your job. Like just make sure they're having fun playing the game. Like that's the most important concept, I think. 
What do you think over there, Ryan? No, I, I totally agree. I mean, I've got, I remember, you know, my son, we had a bonnet set up in the basement and a tee and he was probably five swinging, like, you know, just picked up whatever bat I was using to make my dumb YouTube videos and things <laughs> like that. And, you know, whatever. And, you know, it's way too big for him. He looks ridiculous. I watched him take like five swings, he's having fun. And I was like, Hey, can I help you with something? And he was like, no, I'm good. And took like, literally just put the bat down, went upstairs. <laughs> wasn't a conflict. Like, wasn't anything like, just like, no, like I didn't think anyone was watching me. Like I just wanted to be by myself and like hit these wiffle balls in this weird way with, you know, this crazy split grip, you know, whatever. Yeah. So from then it's been like, like I've probably been on the other side of it too much where I'm just like, okay, well if I like, you know, give him anything, like I'm going to wait for him to come to me, but then he's got to be like, he's got to, it's got to be in front of him for him to know that he's interested and curious about it. Right. And so outside of the fact that he can just come to work with me, and I'm like, hey, do you want to do any of these camps? Well, like if I ask him to do a camp, like, no. But if it's his idea, like, hey, can I like come in? You know, there's six kids here that are about my age. Like, can I jump in? Like, like yeah, dude, of course. Like, whatever. Yeah. And from, from that aspect. Um, so I think that's, you know, you talk about like making sure they're having fun and like smiling. And like then there's sometimes too where he just like wants to be in the office and like just color and like doesn't want to do anything <laughs> with like the other kids. And I'm like, we like, banned electronic, like, electronics from inside the building with my kids. Like they can't play on their, on their tablets. But like, other than that, like have at it, you do whatever you want. We put a basketball goal up. So like shoot basketball. I mean, the basketball goal was for them. I hung a basketball goal up just so they could shoot basketball if you want. Or, yeah. 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 If I could, Count up to the number of times you say "go play." Yeah, to your kids, just go play. Go play. Figure go it play. out. Yeah, I'm giving you something to do. Yeah, well, that's like you said. You want to put like a gymnastics. Like half your building would be, you know, gymnastics. I think that would be really interesting. Like we got these, uh, like for a three-year-old, I don't even know what they're called. They're like these giant blocks with different shapes that you make obstacle courses out of and you build like towers and they climb all over them. And so like, she loves it. And like, we do like, instead of like toys, we like tell people to get them like sensory bins. And it's like literally like a box of noodles, like pipe cleaners. Um, there's like, I can't remember what else, uh, toilet paper, like cardboard, like just the cardboard out of the toilet paper rolls, like not even a full roll of toilet papers. Yeah. And she goes and just plays with all this crazy stuff. And it's like motor learning, forever like her fingers and like putting noodles and making all the creativity like she doesn't even want toys like she'd rather play with that and like literally just uncooked noodles and pipe cleaners than like this crazy like you know pink car or whatever that you buy at toys r us or wherever you get it you know i've been especially more curious and young early stage motor learning as my own kids because you know they're my own kids but we can kind of do whatever we want. And, you know, my affinity for doing weird stuff is really high, but sometimes with other people's kids, you kind of kind of do some things that maybe they feel like you should do with their kids. But with my own kids, like I don't. And so the more that I do, we, we, we do things with them, the more importance that I see in, man, if you don't get, Nick and I have talked about this over and over again. If you don't get like zero to 12 right, your chances of really high, I think really high achieving athletic is very small. Um, zero to 12 is such 
and I don't even, and I'm not even talking about like technique. I'm just talking about like get the intention right, get the fun part right, learn how to move really fast, uh, learn how to adapt, learn how to you know manipulate and adapt your body in space. It just mm-hmm. present them with as many weird things as you possibly can. Did you see the bit bat video in on my Twitter? The bit bat video. So I built this bat. It's it's awesome. Nick is smiling. It is, it's yeah. awesome. So I'm building um, I'm building some spinners one day uh, just by myself, and I get thinking about because I because I'm in the building by myself when I'm doing this, and my mind runs wild most all the time. But I get to thinking. I don't even know why I started thinking about it. But what if you took? So I've got all this this pipe laying around and got all these parts laying around. And so I took this, I'm like, what if you took the, what if you took this stick and you like put a, a bend in it? So you lowered the sweet spot of where the bat would be normally like a ball below your hands. So you're swinging this stick. It's got a bend in it where the sweet spot would be. And so I built it and we, I, we, Ryan, have you seen Ryan Mullins, our the the strength condition guy that works for the Mariners? He's home. He's a kid I coached in high school, and so he's home. Man, it was like watching a car wreck, watching him swing that thing. He probably swung and missed thirty times in a row. Mm-hmm. Like, it was awesome. It was like the backwards bicycle video. Have you seen the backwards bicycle video? Uh, probably somewhere, yeah. So the guy that builds the bicycle where when you turn the handlebar to right, it turns left. And when you turn the handlebar oh, yeah. left, it <laughs> yeah. turns right. And you can't ride it. It was like that because he could not hit the ball. Like, he, he's, you know, he played. So he's got he's got enough eye. He was a pitcher. He's not partic- particularly athletic, but he's got enough eye-hand coordination. That if he threw him 30 balls, he would hit him. And he swung and missed at that thing like 30, to, 30 times in a row. And it was totally awesome to like watch his brain, like try to connect the dots and the sweet spot's not where it's supposed to be, man. Like you got to try to like make yeah. an adaptation to where you're swinging. It was awesome. And that, that little stick, we, we threw my kids in there. I think my son hit like the third one and it's, it's, it's been really cool just to like put that, put that different piece in there and see. Yeah one of those weird things that I built. Yeah. I, I thought that once I started trying it out that I would have been like over top of the ball because the bat should have been in line with my hands. But interesting enough, I was missing under the ball. So like, it was just like, it didn't like make any sense whatsoever. And it, it, it surprised me. It took me a lot longer than I anticipated to like correct myself. I was whiffing almost every other swing. And then if I did make contact, it was just like, I was cutting the bottom part of the ball, which again, was interesting because I thought that I'd be whiffing over the top of it. Um, but it yeah. awesome motor task, dude, it was freaking to me. It's, it's been awesome. We built several cool little things just off the cuff here recently, uh, with those guys home, just because they've got really, really good ideas and really, really good brains. Yeah, I'm going to have to find that video on your Twitter. I started scrolling a little bit, but it must be kind of far down. Yeah, it's probably a week or so ago. It's a slow-mo video. Uh, it's really awesome, that bad tree. You can see it in the video, what we did. 
It was really cool. Are you guys up? Are you guys open at all? Anything? Nothing? Yeah. No, we're we're supposed to be closed till May thirty first. We're hoping it doesn't get extended, but even after that, like we're just trying to trying to do what's right. You know what I mean? Like obviously everyone's antsy. Everyone wants to get back. Like I'm not nearly educated enough on this whole thing to know if it's a some political conspiracy or if it's actually a real thing or it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, so just trying to keep everybody's. Um, just make families comfortable, you know, cause there's going to be, I mean, even when travel baseball around here picks up again, um, I mean, I've been hearing that families are they're just keeping their kids out. Like they're going to stay home anyways, even if everything opens up. Yeah, so. we've, got, we've had some of that. I mean, East Tennessee or Tennessee is wide open. I mean, it's, it's like the wild, wild west. Um, Virginia is still on lockdown. So it's like phase one or something. Yeah. I mean, gyms are closed, but. I don't anticipate even when we can open that many people will come back. Um, we've been sneaking one kid in the back door um, like every day. He comes in like every day because we're there in the, in the shop just doing whatever. Ryan's working out, doing Mariner's work. And Nick, who was at BG, um, has been busy lately, but you know he's been programming, designing, and doing lots of stuff in there so that one kid Nick's kind of learning tech integration too. And so he's been, you know, running lots of, cause he's never, he's never had tech before. You know, Nick has done incredible work with no tech. He's put together his own test retest models without tech that are phenomenal. And so now he's, he's, he's got all these toys and it's kind of one of the things I wanted to, wanted you to touch on as far as like, do you still see like integration of you got all these, you got all these parts and moving parts and pieces now that I think we, we at least have decent understanding of their value being strength conditioning, physical therapy, technology, skill acquisition. Um, I throw movement screening in there. Do you still see the integration of all that as a challenge? And if you do, or if you don't, why? So, yeah, I mean, I think it's always a challenge because your environment's always changing. The way you need to integrate it is different based on your staff, based on the player's interest, and based on what like actually comes back from the information, right? You're not always going to have the same set of players. Um, and so I think, I think that's, I think if you have a system like at a facility, like it's not much of a challenge anymore. Like we've kind of got that down to, you got, the best hype man. you got one of the best hype men in the country. Yeah, the best hype, hype man in the country. I mean, like, it's <laughs> no questions, no questions asked. Um, you know, and, and Nate Pearson. But uh, I thought Chase was going to come on, but he was like, "I was like, hey man, we're going to do like the Johansson roundtable tonight." He's like, "Yeah, dude, I'll be there." And it's like nine fifty-six. He's not here. Yeah, I mean, hype man though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say like, you know, if I, if Nate would jump on, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know it was a open invite. You know, he definitely would have been here hundred percent more time. So we can, we can probably round table with Nate too. He's <laughs> some hype man round yeah. on the intricacies of the hype man. Keep going on the integration part though. I'm interested in how all those pieces in your world kind of intertwine. Yeah, I think, and I think it just depends on like what your goals are. Like every, everybody's like, people ask me all the time, like how, how to integrate it. And it's like, okay, what do you have? 
how much space do you have? What's your manpower? What's your computer background? Like what act, what resources do you have to like store the data? Um, like if you have things like driveline track and you've got other or, or other reporting tools, like that makes your life a lot easier. Um, you know, from that aspect, are you trying to do research and development or are you trying to do player development? Are you trying to integrate R and D with player development? Do you, are you, do you have a way to like split those two things up? Um, you know, from, from that aspect, I mean, it just, it depends. So I, I guess the challenge from around, like just other people I'm talking to when they ask me that question is it all depends on what you have. But I think so many people are afraid to get started because they think they're going to do it wrong. And it's like, you can't really do it wrong. You just have to do it with what matters to you. And if, if you've got four pieces of technology, like pick one thing from each piece, integrate that, and then slowly start to integrate the rest of it. Um, you know, from that aspect. And that's even like, even from staff members, right? Like you're, you talked about, you're not even talking about tech, you're talking about strength conditioning. You're talking about AT medical, you know, now there's, there's motor restoration, like all this stuff, right? Like bath fittings, like everything. Um, and so I think it's just a matter of, like having a really good system in place to check your boxes, right? Like, okay, am I, do I need to make an adjustment here? No. Okay. Move on. Do I need to make an adjustment here? Okay. No, move on. Do I need to make an adjustment here? Uh, it's maybe like a red flag. Like we definitely need to do something here. Um, let's maybe figure out why. And then there's like a whole nother set of checklists based on like that bigger macro, right? There's a micro checklist based on that specific thing. Maybe something's a yellow flag that is like, ah, we're not sure if we want to do this. Like the on-field production is really good. Um, you know, this might be an off season thing, things like that. So I think the challenge is creating the unique environment that's right in the moment. Um, and having a system and creating the initial system that allows you to be mobile, right. That allows you to have that freedom to, to, to integrate and change things on the fly as needed. Um, you know, when we first started, it was like, okay, these are the steps. Like we need to capture everything. And like, okay, now we've got all this information. Like how do we get it to the players? How do we get it to the coaches? How do we, you know, actually use it, make it usable. The nice thing for us is like, we got one thing at a time almost. Right. And so we got really, really good at hit tracks. You know, what are the hit tracks reports like batted ball data? Like that's meat and potatoes of all this, right. Got really good at blast and bat sensors. Got really good at 40 motion. Got, you know, got really good at force plates and like just kept working backwards and backwards and backwards. And, you know, this is like, you're just adding, you're just slowly adding it into like a way, but we had to change our model a lot to fit all that in. Like, it's not just like, we can't just like add another piece. Like there's a whole nother yeah. step that goes into this. So I think the challenge, you know, to, you know, is just understanding your environment, understanding what you care about, and then being confident in your belief system. I think a lot of people just aren't confident in their belief system. So they don't know where to start. It's like, do you think in that, you know, this goes to, and I think that my clarity and, you know, it's, it's that first principles thinking. It's like we got to know what we're trying to do as far as, like, can the player hit the ball hard enough? Can he hit he in the air consistently? And within those things, now we can, like, how granular can you go? You know, you right. talk about 4D and you talk about force plates and hit tracks. And that's super granular. But it all maps to helping that individual player in any snapshot in time, being able to execute uh, timing a pitch and swinging where the ball is with speed and force. I mean, I think you talk about that, like just kind of be on time and arrive with force. And so, yeah, I mean, that's like that's what we're, we're swinging a dead tree. 
Yeah. Something that can kill us, right? Like in a ball of yarn that can literally take our head off. And like, so like, if that's the task, like we need to know, like, okay, like one, be on time for that, right? Like we're trying to like, just create, like you said, just be on time with force. Like if we do that, like, great, that's hitting. And then from there, like you, like you said, just working backwards from that. I think a lot of people, you know, there's this whole thing on Twitter and social media and stuff of people who use tech, like they speak in ones and zeros. Like that's not the case. Like in most uh, cases, like, right. Like uh, it's just not the case. Um, and then there's also uh, this Nick, Nick is, I've gotten to where I can get Nick to like, not look at the swing sensor stuff as he's doing it. Like, don't, don't even worry about it. Just like, log it into the iPad and then like you can go back after and see what happened. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of people are afraid. Nick's not one of these people, but like a lot of people are afraid. It's like when you take the stance of you and Nick, Nick says this and he can correct me when saying this. It's like, if you, if you try to apply the solution first and you don't address the problem of like hitting the ball, the solution meaning, I'm trying to prescribe like swing like this, you know, do this. It's like, if I say the wrong thing, then it's going to mess everything up. And it's like, ah, well, don't even start there. Like start with just what is it going to take for you to like hit the ball really hard and, and hit the ball, not on the ground. Because I, I call those guys in our, in our facility. Uh, I just kind of talk trash to them. It's like, dude, the pitchers are going to love you. It's like, you come to the plate, the pitchers are going to like be, fist pumping inside because you hit so many stupid ground balls. Like if you only get the ball off the ground, whatever that's going to look like for you. And, and let's go from there. Cause after we, we can do that. Now we, we can maybe do some different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, like, start with the, start with the problem first, not the solution. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, I don't want to get too far off of this, but Rob Gray, I think he blogged been crushing Twitter lately, Ryan. Oh, man. Rob Gray has been crushing Twitter lately. It's been awesome. That, that task simplicity versus task uh, decomposition. Yeah. Was a block. Loved it. I keep cutting yeah. out in any. Yeah. It was uh, a Wednesday, Wednesday Wisdom post on, on the website. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, I love that. Um, and that kind of goes back to uh, what you're talking about. Like, are we constraining to constrain or constraining to afford, right? Like, are we like trying to influence these ideal patterns through constraints or are we actually using constraints for self-organization? And obviously those are two very different concepts, um, but kind of getting back to what you were saying. And something I wanted to mention in the with the DK is like, like really how much feedback about that DK are you giving to a hitter um, in a session, right? I mean, I think that's one of uh, the biggest problems I have or questions I have um, working with any hitter is if you're going to use the swing sensor um, as information, which is great, but how much feedback and what type of feedback um, and the frequency of feedback are you giving that hitter? Is it, is it, is it on you or is it on them? Right? Like who's directing the feedback? There's a lot of questions that I have, um, specific to, to a swing sensor in a hitting session when it comes to feedback. So it's, it's been challenged for me. Yeah, I think so for me, it's, I, everything's gotta be a checkbox, right? Like 
if they're hitting a certain peak speed, I'm good. If they hit within 10% of that on their average speed, like I'm good. Like basically we just tell them like, Hey, good job. If you know, if we continue to go through our checkbox, but this isn't at, like, this isn't during the session, this would be like, Hey, let's hit, let's see like everything all together. Like all I want you to think about is like what, what you're going to do to the baseball. That's the only thing I want you thinking about. And then from there, like they go home, whatever, you know, we're, another room you know whatever the environment is and you know we kind of put it all together start collating it start asking ourselves questions like oh this is like a yellow flag you know is this something we need to fix now or is there something more important and we try to work backwards and find the lowest hanging fruit and sometimes that makes that yellow flag a you know a green flag like okay now we're good like that just checks our boxes so when i say like red yellow green obviously green being good yellow being like i don't know and then you know red being uh not good um you know on that side of things so I guess from a feedback perspective, like for me personally, do that. you do that or are you, are you collecting force plate data on that too? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that. I think a lot of, I, a lot of force plate data for me is all about context. You know, there's certain find, things. We want. Yeah. Do you find in the force plate data that if you, if you get red flags or yellow flags and force plate data from like the ground up and you address those things, do you find that, other flags up upstream like fix themselves somewhat i've never used force plate so i'm like that's a curious question yeah so for i mean it used to be like i mean everything with force play data like starts with the pelvis and the core and that's been like a really big challenge for i think even like just people to grasp because they assume it's like the legs and like the feet yeah and there's like something that is said there, but like how we control our center of mass, like are, are basically like if our legs are just like support systems and how we control our center of mass into like our pelvis and our core determines like how our legs interact with the ground. And so trying to like navigate that and like collating that with like 4D, that's more of like what we found. Like we did, you know, we did like a study on a guy where it looked and even sometimes on a graph, like the force plates are just telling you like where the force is being generated, like from a plate perspective but the video tells you like where the foot like how it's happening things like that and for me like a big thing with even pitching and hitting right now is like drive through the heel because if you drive through the heel it's a direct line from your tibia to your femur to your, into your glute be glute loaded not quad loaded things like that and for me it, like i just want you to be able to stay hinged and create space if that means you have to get on your toes i'm fine with that but on the flip side we might be susceptible to falling over forward sometimes or having creating too much forward bend and we might be susceptible to you know being off balance sometimes and missing more so it's just a matter of like risk risk versus reward and that's like what you talked about nick like are we trying to just be swing coaches or are we trying to be like hitting coaches right like are we trying to hit the baseball we're trying to have a perfect swing that like or, or hit metrics on an app like i think bobby tewksbury i think i stole that from him where he talks about like dude when you're just taking these sensors and you're just trying to like just only hit a metric on an app and you know i've seen people literally coach from a computer and be like yeah good job and like it was a ground ball at second base Mm-hmm. Like he didn't even see the ball flight. He just saw like the hips turn faster and sure. Is it like a better, like faster swing? Was he maybe just trying to accomplish like a faster turn? Sure. And the guy was earlier cause he'd never turned that fast before. And therefore he got ahead of it and rolled it over to second base. It was a lefty. And like, so, so like, can we just say like, Hey, now you're faster. And now you have to like learn how to be on time with that faster speed. So like there's like context with all this, but if you just sit there, like I can't imagine players being very, happy with a, like somebody staring into a computer screen, rolling over a second base and then being told good job. 
you know, from, from that aspect. Right. Yeah. Like, so I think like we just have to find a way, I mean, that's the challenge, right? You talk about integration, Chad, like, I think that's the challenge is when, you know, you, your question, Nick, is something I ask myself all the time too, like when and where, like when and where are we going to use this stuff? And I think just having a firm belief system and where you're at doesn't mean we don't continue to grow. It just means we're really confident in the direction we go when we go there. I think Nick is Nick has been really good and kind of approach that we take and have taken is you know we Nick is really good at like designing rounds where you're you're just trying not to get out. Like I'm gonna take this ball and I'm gonna try to get you out. Don't get out. Like I'm gonna throw you I'm gonna throw you any assortment of these three pitches at any time. Don't get out. You know, if it's not your peak exit velocity, fine. That doesn't matter. Like if you dump us if you get Saw off a little bit, and you can dump a single over the shortstop. Awesome. You didn't get out. Like, I think Ochart said that a while back. It's like, you know, it always just goes back to the boring truth of, like, mm-hmm. practice against somebody trying to get you out, and don't get out. Mm-hmm. You know, the roller to second base, yeah, we achieved maybe a faster pelvic speed, or we achieved whatever we maybe whatever movement or whatever metric goal we had, but, like, you got out. And so that's not the goal. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been trying to um, reinforce total bases. I know that the hit tracks will um, total that for you, but they're not able to really kind of keep track of that um, unless really I'm helping helping them out with it. So, yeah, that's basically what I've been trying to do is I set an objective for the task. The task objective a lot of times is um, just a slightly outside of their reach um, with some assistance, I think that they can um, achieve that run value. Like for some guys, they have um, a Q hit game of 15, and maybe last Q hit game, they only scored four runs versus this type of pitcher. So um, our goal is going to be five runs this time, um, just kind of up the ante. And um, from there, we'll just kind of just collect total bases and total runs. And what I'll do, like Chad said, is um, I'll, I'll add a variety of baseballs, the colored baseballs um, that were designed and that we've been using as well, basically just coloring the laces. And I'll just vary those whenever. It's pretty random when I vary those. And uh, like Chad said, I'll add a count. I'll add um, um, uh, just different pitch types and um, just allow them to find it. Just really just try to solve that problem, whatever it is. Um, I don't, I just kind of add those variables in terms of pitch speed or location or movement. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's keeping the main thing, the main thing, right? Like it, at the end of the day, it's about like just run value, right? How much run value do you have as a hitter? Um, you know, there's other things, um, they are important, but at the end of the day, what's most important is just not making it out. It's a, it's a really good point. Um, when we're not recording some time, I'll have to, I'll have to show you a, a, a cool graphic I made um, on run value. <laughs> it's funny because Nick and I, we had an interesting conversation today, actually, about Ichiro. He said, what do you think about Ichiro? And I'm like, it's like I don't know, man. Like, I, I don't really get that jacked up about singles hitters. Uh, but, I mean, he was obviously really good. And everybody always said he could hit homers if he wanted to hit homers. And I was thinking – then we got to second. Like, why didn't he? But then it got into the conversation of like, why in the in the I use my quote fingers in the old school was it so hard 
for people to understand total bases. Like the more bases you can get as an offensive player, the better player you're going to be. So if, like if you can sacrifice maybe some some contact some contact somewhere for more total bases, like that's better. And forever in baseball, why was that so hard to understand? And I'm and I was one of those guys. It was like, don't strike out, yada yada yada. yada. It's like. Well, all we should be really worried about at the end of the day is total bases. Like, can you produce a lot of total bases? Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I want to bring this up because I asked you, and, and, I, and you had a good response to it. And um, I asked you too, Ryan, especially being in professional baseball where hitters have over the years developed this identity as a hitter and as a hitting coach or a hitting strategist, you believe that they could be this other type of hitter that they could have this identity like Ichiro said that if he wanted to hit home runs he could hit home runs well how difficult in your experience has it been to almost like change a hitter's identity from more of a like a low strikeout percentage high contact ball in play right versus someone with a higher ISO um maybe strikeouts come along with it but like how are you changing that type of identity what's that conversation like if you've had something like that the can of worms man um well first of all you know it's got to be organization based when you're talking about you know changing identity so it's not something from a it's not something hitting coaches typically at least in the current model are going to take a lot of ownership of like our job is to help players with where they're at meet them where they're at and then kind of be their assistant in what their goals are with the organization goals, right? So if the organization's goals are to make this guy somebody different and, and change the identity there, then I think that's um, that's just context and trying to provide context for players. And there's definitely been some conversations like that. Um, but the biggest thing is like hearing from just guys who, especially teams and organizations who are using data, in my opinion, incorrectly right now and saying like, you have to fit this mold. And if you don't fit this mold, we're going to release you. And then they get picked up by another team that's like, and like tear it up and are amazing. It's like, why'd you release that guy? Ah, well, you know, he didn't, his blast number wasn't X or it wasn't this. And like, he was never going to get there. Like they, you know, I think when you try to, I think the players got to buy in. Right. So Chad, we talk about like efficient motor learning strategies, like challenging for the task and things like that. And how many players, spend a lot of time on a routine that isn't actually productive to helping them like grow as a hitter. But what it does is it gives them confidence and belief at the plate that night. And when you have confidence and belief that night, based on what you did in the day during the day, you're probably going to hit better. Um, so I think it's a balance of like having the player make it their idea, um, asking a lot of questions that like get them to the conclusion that like getting more bases is better than not getting bases at the expense of whatever, but your organization also has to value scoring runs. Um, you know, they've, they've got to value the right things and, and things like that. So I think just across major league baseball, there's all, all these different strategies, right. Of how to score runs outside of just like the basic task of scoring runs. And that's part of why we play the game. Cause everybody's got all these different strategies of what's going to play, what's not going to play things like that. And we can sit behind the computer and look at all the numbers and things like this. And this is somewhat of my diplomatic answer. Right. But at the end of the day, like it comes down to just strategy and like believing in letting the player believe in who he is um, and helping him be the best version of who he wants to be. Um, and that just comes down to building relationships and, and things like that. But it's a challenge. Like, I, I think it's, a, I think it's a really big challenge to change an organization's identity. I think it's a really big challenge to, to convince a player of who their, what their identity is. Um, 
But I think at the end of the day, it just stems like from belief. If they believe they can be a power guy and get more bases, it's going to be a lot easier than if they're just like self-loathing. Like, no, I'm just weak. And I'm my, I just have to, you know, hit for contact. Like I had a player last year, you know, we figured out like just from an approach standpoint, like where he was the most productive. And we figured out with runners in scoring position, this left-handed hitter was way more effective. He had a higher ISO. He, um, you know, had a higher ISO, more total bases, higher average, everything was better. And I was like, dude, what are you thinking about with runners in scoring position there? He's like, Oh, I'm just trying to hit it hard and pull it. And like, I'm like, dude, they put the shift on you. All right. You know, for the most part, like, yeah, sure. Like the base runners like play a little bit of role. It's not like as shifted, but like, he's like, yeah, well, you know, I try to beat the shift in my other at bats at times. I just try to like, make sure I make contact and don't strike out. Like, dude, just try to hit the ball hard every time. Like your numbers are way better when you just have this, like, you're not afraid of getting out. Like you're trying to accomplish a specific task. He's like, yeah, but hit in the air, the guy scores. If I hit on the ground, the guy scores. Like, it doesn't matter. I just have to hit it. And like, I'm just trying to hit it hard. I'm like, when you do that, your numbers are way better. Like do that all the time in all situations. Um, and similarly too, he was, a, he was like way better with less than two outs. Cause he's like, oh, you know, when he thought he was going to end the inning, that put extra pressure on him. So like that was an example of like, we could change who this hitter is a little bit and get him to con- like convince himself to have a different identity through some of this stuff. But it all stems from like context, right? I can't just be like, Hey, like try to hit the ball through the shift all the time and to crush the baseball. Like what are you talking about? You know, like there's, there's guys over there, like don't hit them, hit them where they ain't like there's, they're all standing over there. What do you mean? Hit it through them. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. That, kind of brings up something that I really haven't thought about. Um, and I'll take a step back and then I'll come back to this. Like we were just talking about task design inside the cage where we want to really just direct our hitters to the external target of just not making it out, just hitting it away from the defenders. Like I'm going to vary my pitch characteristics and my pitch tendencies. We're going to put a shift on in the cage or whatever. And you just have to just like hit it away from the, you have to figure out what I'm going to do from a pitching standpoint and, hit it away from the fielders. So like uh, what you're talking about there is interesting. I haven't really thought about this. Like like with a hitter who's trying to learn or not, maybe not learn, but trying to understand if this particular strategy is effective. Like what if like you're taking batting practice and you just pull Ted shifted this left-handed hitter and then you say, okay, well you have a few options here. If like you can try to hit it over the shift or you can just try to hit it where they're not like being able to kind of solve that problem that gives them like more opportunity to kind of explore and search for like motor solutions to that problem. Right. I mean, not to say that we're trying to practice the same problem over and over again. Right. That's not something that I'm I'm saying. It's something that you're still varying the problem, but also like being able to try to navigate that type of problem and figure out like, Hey, is this part of my identity? Can I, can I uh, do this at a high level? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think for me, it comes down to like what all that, all that did for that player was, was free him up mentally, right? Like he just wasn't afraid of getting out anymore. And so now he's going to be a more, like everything's going to work more efficiently. Like we talk about like anxiety and how that connects to just like your body reacting and th- like getting to that flow state. Like it just simplifies everything for him. So for me, it's, my answer. that was kind of my answer was like, we, we have, we have the information to equip them with, the reason why like there were just players in the old days that I'm small, I'm little, I should hit singles. And that's what they believed. And to, with today's information, like you're talking about, you have the data to show this guy in these situations 
with the fielders in these places, your run value is way better. What are you doing? Like, you know, 20 years ago, that wasn't possible. Um, and so that, that was, um, Mm-hmm. So much better. You don't have to guess. That's that's guess what I'm getting at is you're not guessing at what you're telling this guy, which frees him up. Is that kind of I'm on the right track with that? Yeah, I would say so for sure. And and it comes down. I mean, if that player fights me on that and is like, dude, there's no way. Like, then I've got a I've got a completely audible. I mean, this whole thing's about players, and I think that's the difference between research and development and player development is like, we're, in player development, we're trying to move the needle, and research and development, we're trying to figure out what's right. Like you can be wrong and make a player better, like, right? Like if like if it if it like for like absolutely right. And so, um, I think that's like trying to and, and players can be wrong in their belief and and be really good players. I mean that's totally fine. I mean that's we see it all the time on ESPN and MLB Network about stuff that guys do that it all of a sudden becomes like a trend or something. And like, you know, we know from a motor learning standpoint that's not efficient. That's not doing anything for them. It's just providing a routine and a belief in something that they you know think is right like i think even the yellowish videos it, it <laughs> the yellowish the yellowish the stuff is is that the most efficient way to like figure out how to get basically in the zone earlier and then therefore like may have a better point of contact like out in front like just be like longer like probably not but it worked for him and it worked so do i i can't knock it i can't knock like what he claims is like what you know switched him over right after doing that drill and what got him to get that feel but at the same time like is that the most efficient thing like for that specific problem which essentially was a late point of contact and attack angle yeah yeah i mean i think that was a very interesting uh interview um i guess might have been an interview maybe it was just a conversation that he was having um that really blew up on twitter and um yeah, like I'm with you there. I think like that conversation with a player, um, obviously I don't have that type of experience with professional players and how they kind of navigate those conversations when um, they hold this um, belief that, you know, a specific training um, task or drill has um, has significantly improved their swing plane or whatever. I think um, that would be a difficult conversation to have with those types of players. And, and I mean, in your experience, how do you, typically have those conversations with those guys. Whereas, you know, you, you understand the motor learning piece and um, the biomechanical piece and, and, and maybe they don't understand to a larger degree. Like, is that a conversation that you have about those things or is it something that you just allow them to um, carry with them? Yeah. Great question. Um, Let me say this really fast and I'll double, double back to it too. So, Part of, I think, why that works is because the coaches, you know, or the coaches he had at the time and Bonds, you know, was very big into like chopping down, right? So Bonds had to find a drill within his belief system that would allow Christian Yelich to get on plane earlier and hit the ball further out in front, right? So the drill within that belief system, I think, was that's how some of this stuff gets created. So that drill wouldn't match a lot of other people's belief system based on just how they feel about playing. Um, that doesn't mean that having a belief system that's straight down here is going to make you automatically a bad hitting coach, right? Like that's, I think that's pretty unfair to to assume, um, because you might have really good drills within your belief system. It might not be what's actually happening. It might be just your belief system, but if you can teach your belief system really, really well, 
you could probably still be a, a good hitting coach, right? Um, so that's just something like random comment I wanted to make. We talked about like confidence and efficacy the other day in another conversation. It just made me think of that. Um, but anyways, yeah, in terms of like <laughs> how players uh, perceive that, um, got to ask a lot of questions and just have them get to the, the answer that you think is right for them. And usually if your answer makes sense, you can ask less, like you can ask a series of questions and they'll, they'll come to that deduction. Be like, Oh yeah, wait, like, okay, what else do you think? And then now you've opened it up to like talk more and and things like that. I also think it's important to like encourage what they currently believe and why they're there. So they, you know, know that their opinion matters, but there's just like more out there. Like if you just walk in and you're like, no, that's stupid. Like, why do you do that? Like, that's not going to work. It's like anything else. It's like the common sense of just be a normal human and have a normal relationship. Um, you know, from that aspect, I think goes a really long way, uh, which I think we all would agree on. But for some reason, that's like needs to be said every day on Twitter that relationships matter. Um, mm-hmm. oh, one, of my favorite questions, one of my favorite questions, and I always preface it, I ask it to my wife and everybody is, I'm not questioning you, but I'm going to ask you a question. And then I, then I go into why do you feel that way? I'm genuinely curious, like to ask that question. Like I'll ask that question of, of Nick or Ryan or, or anybody. It's like, why do you feel that way? I'm, I'm I'm not questioning you and feeling that way, but I'm genuinely curious. Like, why do you feel like that? And then you can get their real answer. Like, I don't want the sugar coated coach fluff that you're going to throw back at me. Like I, I genuinely am curious why you feel, you know, I would ask Yellow, it's like, deeper why do you feel that way or why do you think that worked for you and just you know because i'm genuinely curious i'm just most people haven't figured that out like i'm not questioning you i have no i have no place of intelligence to question many people but i'm asking questions so i can help me figure come where you are and figure it out Mm -hmm. and and i think that's a great approach because it shows cooperation and not um, more of a command style leadership, right? Um, I think that expresses that co-participant role that you're trying to play with the hitter. And, and that's a great, that's a great response. And I, and I definitely try to approach that way. And just by emphasizing questions and, cause I think it's unfair to the hitter, um, or to any player by making these assumptions about some held belief when you don't know the context of that help belief. So like you said, by asking good questions and, and them questions being guiding questions to leading towards the main idea behind it. Um, I think that that's, um, leading them in a, to a, to a destination where they can really start to, um, critically think about what it is that they hold, um, as a belief. Nick, you are right. Yeah. I think it's important for us to have multiple. Go ahead. Keep going. You sure? Yep. Keep going. (laughs) I was going to say, I think it's important for like us to have different tools in our toolbox of terms of like how we coach, right? Like it would be perfect in an ideal world to coach real all the time. I just want to coach real all the time. I want to tell you exactly what's happening. I want to show you in video what's happening. I want to use, I want to use anatomical terms to talk about like what body part that you understand. Like that would be my ideal world. Like let's just, just make it black and white. This is what happened. This is what's happening. This is like your task and your goal. I think moving this way is going to help you accomplish that task and that goal and focusing on this, you know, from that aspect. But in reality, like to your point, 
there's going to be a lot of guys that are like, no, my whole career, like I need to think this, I have to think this, I have to think this, I have to think I get on top. I have to think that. And if they think that way, then the yellow trail might be great for them if they're consistently late. Like my, it, that might they play. And if I have that in my toolbox, if I know how to coach a player who thinks this way without having to think like, Oh, he's lost forever. I'll, I'll never get him back. Like if he can't feel like barrel depth and getting behind the ball, I don't know what to do. And so I think, you know, at the facility level is definitely different. Cause like they come for our expertise and our knowledge at the facility level. Like we, we literally like they give us, it's a transaction. They, they, they pay us money for us to tell them our, our best ideas that we think we have, right. That we think we have, like, I don't know, like just what I currently believe in now. And so I can tell them like more real and I can tell them what I ideally like to coach, but that doesn't mean at the pro level, like that always plays. And so I think to answer your question, um, like constantly just like listening to other people and even the people that, you know, we are sarcastic about and kind of jokingly brag on and, and things like that. Like, I'm sure that I'm sure they've got great stuff that has worked with players before and changed, like turned careers around. You just don't hear about it. Like, you know, every day. So sorry, Chad, what were you going to say? Um, nothing real, particularly smart. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, like you're at the, you're at the pro level and it's the college level. Um, how much do you see players in the last, this be your second year in pro ball, I guess, but like how many more players do you see in the college level or how many more players do you see coming into the pro level that are more uh, curious, maybe not the right word, but like needing the, the technology to, as a feedback tool, like they need it. Like they need to know like, Hey, um, instead of feeling down, my best swing is when I do whatever, whatever metric it is, you know, I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But like how, how much more accepting are we right now with players coming up? Young players. More so this year. I mean, we made a giant, I mean, just from, just from what I can say is we made a big leap from last year to this year. Um, and just what we're capable of in our organization from talking with players, with other organizations, um, obviously like players who come to our facility, like trust us to say things, you know, in general about what they, what they feel right. And players in our organization, like for me, like probably aren't, aren't as comfortable to like say what they need all the time. They just kind of want to be coachable and like yeah. get a pat on the back and get their gold star and like try to move up levels and, you know, play the sociology game too. Um, whereas like players from other org that come to our facility, like they're more like, yeah, we don't do any of this stuff. This is ridiculous. Like I can't imagine like my college had more stuff, um, things like that. So I think it's going to slowly start to turn in, in that regard. I mean, the other factor is like the education system in terms of technology is so is so much better even at like the freshman high school level like middle school level like they're just getting access to like microsoft word and powerpoint and computers and like setting up their own video game systems and just zoom calls now like all this stuff like it's and those little minute skill skills you learn from just using a computer on an everyday basis i mean there's there's a lot of coaches that have been in the game that like probably would struggle with microsoft word you know, just cause they've been in baseball forever. Like they never really had to use it for anything before. Uh, um, and so I think, you know, those skills, when you start to talk about like, okay, now use an iPad, like now use, you know, an electronic camera, now use this, like, um, players are going to start to have 
more resources and more knowledge on some of this stuff. Um, in this short little like overlap, you know, where we're trying to like catch everybody up across, you know, all 30 teams and things like that. And obviously you've got some teams who are just like cleaning house and hiring all new people, right? Like we saw that all over Twitter. Um, and then you've got other teams that are trying to integrate this solely with the great staff and great humans that they have already. So, um, and it's kind of like a mix and there's, a, you know, there's, there's the, there's the crazy side where you just fire everyone, hire everyone else. And there's the crazy side where you're like, just don't do anything at all. Right. And so, and then there's everybody else kind of in the middles. Um, so to answer your question in a short way, like I think it's turning, but the challenge is going to be like players don't want to know more than their coaches. And I don't think, I think coaches get really kind of like egotistical and like, if they get, the, if they feel threatened by the player, then that's even almost like an anti data, like anti technology, like, even more so like inside. Cause they're like, Oh, this guy, he just wants to talk about blast numbers. Like his direction sucks. Who cares about his blast number? Like I can see it on video. Like you, type you, thing. you say that you think, you know, I've never thought about it like that. Do you think that's why Trevor, do you think that's why Trevor got pushed back for so long? Trevor probably. Got. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think he just knew more than his coaches. I mean, he, he really did. He probably knew he probably still knows more than most of them. I mean, he, you know, he basically, I mean, he's the re, he's a lot of the reason why it's trying he may be the reason it's trying cameras are in major league baseball. I mean, he was the first yeah. guy. Uh, yeah. This was way before anyone was thinking about any of this stuff. Yeah. And, he, and he's like, he's that guy who's like OCD and, um, like really just, I mean, even when just like he does interviews, like there's like something different about him, you know, on that side of things, like that's just how it's, it's <laughs> was, you know, things of how serious he is about his specific work. And I think that takes people like that to, to, to move the needle. It takes people like that to like make like drastic change. And obviously he's got the platform to do it. You know, great. Said that the other day really was like player. It has to, players have to change the game. I mean, if it comes from players, then the game changes. It can't come right. from you or from me or from Nick or, you know, Trevor changed the game. I mean, he changed. I think it was kind of alongside the Astros at the time, um, but he was really kind of the first guy. and You know, he has a documented history with, like, being difficult to coach, you know, when he probably knew more than his coaches did, now that you say that, you know, and didn't really care. He knew more than his coach right. did. He just didn't really care to like say it. Yeah. And and that's, I think, yeah. And, and I think that's the challenge, right? Like there's definitely, there's definitely, you know, conversations that play and players just have to be comfortable in saying those things. Like I hope for me, like an organization, like I hope players can come up to me and be like, dude, this system sucks. Like, like I've talked to somebody over at, you know, whatever organ he's my best friend and I played with them wherever. And like, they're doing it this way. Like, is there a way we can incorporate something better? Because this is terrible. Like, how do, how are we hitting like this? How are we structuring it like this? How are we using the technology like this? And hopefully it does never suck. Right. Like that's not my goal, but I'm, I'm saying like, if it, if it does, I'm, I would hope like the players would be able to come up and be like, Hey man, like, can we maybe start to like change this a little bit? Because at the end of the day, like we don't have jobs without the players. The players don't have jobs without the fans. So, like, we've got to take care of, like, you talk about, like, task and, like, orient, like what we're oriented about. Like, if we're only concerned with coaching and ourselves and being the best coach, like, that we're not sure. Like, can I, am I going to be the best? Like, that's got to be – that can't be your, like, first task. Like, your first task has to be, like, find a way to connect and make the player better. And 
like if you just care that much about it, you're going to start to understand that like when you track data and you track data on your players and you can give them better feedback loops, like that's, what's going to make you a good coach. But if it's just like, I want to come up and I want to seem like I'm the best coach, like you don't have a job without the players. And if you just, you can be the best coach ever. And if no player ever listens to you, like you don't have a job, like you might know the most, I guess it wouldn't make you a good coach, but you can know the most, right. You can be the most knowledgeable. And if you can't translate it, like what is, and what is knowledge? Like, like what? maybe, yeah, definitely. Maybe <laughs> for sure. I've said that yeah. execution is execution will always play. And you got to learn by doing. Yeah. Because like, what is knowledge? Like what is, what has it got to do with anything? If you can't apply it, learn by doing and those things. I, and I think that comes back to like this, the, the Yelich video, like he executed on that makes it, makes it great. It makes it better than the best plan that was never executed on, which he didn't try a lot of things. So it makes that plan better. Like, you know, from, from that aspect, but, um, you know, as a developing hitter though, I think, I think a lot of times it's easy to get lost and what happens on Twitter most every day at most every minute of most every hour is you know, we get, they, they get too, they get too, uh, they get too focused on this, the perfect solution, like the, the one way it's like, man, you're not even really that good. You should be trying a lot of ways. You should be trying a lot of different stuff. Nick and I talk about that. Like, for example, there's, we have, we have this one, we have, we have this one really, really super elite, like young 13 year old, like mover, like he moves, he's athletic scores like 40 points a game in basketball. Like you can't guard him at wide receiver, but I think he needs to like move his handset around and like try some different stuff, man. Like you, I'm not going to tell you how to stand, but I think you, I think he needs to stand differently. Like I need, I think he needs to move himself around because you you can't be this good of athlete at 13 years old and kind of know what's going to work best for you. And so we talked, Nick and I talked about like just designing different task challenges where he hits. We make him do drills where he hits from his hands where Bonds had them. And then he'll do rounds where he hits with his hands where Bellinger's got them. And he hits from a narrow stance and he hits from a wide stance. And he, cause you just can't know as an up and coming player, what's going to be best. Cause if you don't look, you may, you may not find something that could change everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't, uh, I, I guess I could say it like this, like it, just like that concept of like motor abundance, right? Like being able to solve the same, or maybe not the same problem, but um, small nuances of the problem in a in a in a myriad of ways, right? Like, and so we challenge our guys. It's like, like okay, you solve the problem with that handset. Now try to solve it with this handset. Like you can't, you can't use the same solution to the next problem. Like, like, and that goes back to like, you know, you're, you're repeating the means, but you're not repeating the problem and you're not repeating the solution, right? Like, like you're talking about like being able to, you know, strike close this time or, or um, have a higher handset this time, or maybe not even like explicitly telling them, maybe you could, uh, but maybe just like, Hey, like do something different this time and still try to hit it away from the filters. Yeah, it's a guided self-discovery process that is just so hugely 
valuable and just presenting players with opportunities to like find things because mm-hmm. they're not looking. I mean, Ryan, I don't know how, what your experience is with with a lot of those with a lot of pro guys or even got people in your system, but they're not looking. I mean, they come to you and in a lot of ways they want the answer. And it's like, well, let's right. just look. Let's just yeah. look for stuff. Yeah, it's like yeah. like the. Uh, yeah, just real quick, like today, like, you know how I, like, vary, like, my pitch um, characteristics, like, yeah. my my spin direction, I'll mix, like, hand height, like, um, you know, a, a variety of things. But, like, today I was working with Drew, and um, I was working with uh, Jay Reed, and I simply just, like, changed my handset, like, fastball, curveball, for three Q-hit games, and I was just encouraging him to explore um, who I am as a pitcher and see if he can pick up any tendencies, and he couldn't. And it's just like it's just mind blowing, honestly. How like that type of information isn't being used to guide their action. And it's just like, well, if your attention is not like um, like trying to figure out like how you can use this information to guide your action, then really, where is your attention? in this task. And so like, I just want to bring that up real quick, but I just thought that was interesting that it's like, I, I see that. I still see that a lot. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I agree with you that, that they're not necessarily looking for options. They're looking for spoon fed information. And like, that's like the worst type of information, like, right. Like, cause it's not, it's not scalable. Like teaching someone how to learn, like, teaching someone how to learn is going to be way more beneficial than just, I mean, I think it says in the Bible, right? Teach a man a fish, he'll eat forever. You give him a fish, he's only fed for a day. Like, you know, things like that. Like it's the same concept in, in movement solutions, you know, in that aspect. So if you guys are talking about like different handsets, like my favorite thing is to do like, like literally I have guys start like Euclid's like, Hey, start all weird. Like do the Gary Sheffield, do the Nomar, like, everything down from like pre-pitch routine to like this and like, we'll look up stuff on video. Right. And we'll, we'll show them like what these guys do. And it's like mimic it. And then we'll take the video and we'll compare it. Like, what do you see? What can you do better? Like, how can you be Gary Sheffield better? Oh man. Yeah. My bat, my rhythm's all off. It's not the same way he did it. Okay. Let me go back. Like, and then you can, and then what they learn to do is like find a video of them crushing a Homer and like on different pitches or things like that. And then now they can be, they can evaluate their video better and do what they want to do next time. Right. And that's, I think, now that's not to say like, you should swing the exact same way on every single ball, you know, Homer on. But I think if you were on time with force, you'd probably want to find a, like find some similarities and other ways to be on time with force, like from that swing, that's right for your body. It was like, I think about the, I think it was Pete Alonso's 50th Homer where he had just the massive amount of tilt and bend and figured out a way to just get the barrel to it and get it in the air. Mm-hmm. You go somewhere along the line. I mean, you maybe not practice that that solution in a vacuum, but you practiced enough solutions in enough environments in enough ways that you came up with that. Like, yeah, you know, I'm a big, I'm a huge, like you know that about me. Like, I'm a huge like training variability. Like, I love weighted bats. I love long bats. I love short bats. I lo- I just love angle BP. Like, I, lo- I love I love all that. And I asked Rachel Folden this too. Is there any way that a player is is bad if let's say for, let's say for example 
Um, they'll go in-loaded Bellinger stance, barrels. Then they'll go knob-loaded uh, Barry Bonds stance, barrels. And then they'll go 37-inch, 37-inch axe bat, barrels. Is there any way that they're bad? Is there any way that they're bad? A bad hitter if they can do all of that. Like, probably probably not. It probably comes down to, like, anxiety and, like... Yeah, just mental state. Like, just... Yeah. You're right, and just, you can hit. Like, you can do all of that. Yeah. Barrels, and then... There's always that factor of, like, stress, though, too. I mean, you're mm-hmm. right. Having a heartbeat on the other end of it, I think, is different than even machines. And, and obviously, machines we can get crazier with it. We can be, you know, we can throw crazy spins. We obviously near the strike zone, and you know, be more consistent and be more efficient. We're not going to blow out, you know, arms and things like that. But you know, having a heartbeat on the other end of it, like competing against a human versus competing against a machine, I think is slightly different. Um, but I also think like that's the biggest thing is like people see guys, they call them like five o'clock hitters, right? And they crush, they crush, they crush. Well, if they're crushing flips, like, are they even like a five o'clock hitter? Are they just a flip sitter, you know, from, from that aspect? Like, what are you challenging them with? But I agree with you. If you can do all these weird things, if they're not producing in a game, like then we need to look at like mental state and like the other side of it. Like, let's not just be like, oh, well, you know, sure. You know, cause then that's where the stigma comes in, right? Like, oh, you do all those crazy weighted bats and you do the angle flips and you do this, like, that's not going to help you. It's obviously not helping you compete in the game. Like, let's go. It's your elbow. You know, your elbow is not in the right spot. Like that's, that's the problem. It's like, no, like I, my elbow's in the right spot. Fine. When I swing these giant bats and small bats and crazy, like I hit the crap out of it. Like I'm just not stressed there. So when you talk about stress, I mean, I think, and that's the other like thing we talk about, like player development is so, it's so broad. It's always going to be so broad. There's, I stopped counting the variables every time a pitch was thrown for a hitter at 82. Like I was like, I'm, I'm not going down this rabbit hole. Like I just, I know there's over 82 variables that happens every time a hitter swings a bat. And like for us to be like, it's your elbow, like, or it's your, cause you're front loaded or it's because of it. Like it's probably we're probably not right on that exact variable, especially because a lot of those variables are micro variables that cause the macro mm-hmm. and how much of the micro is just because we haven't ever practiced that task. Like, like even great hitters who struggle against specific pitchers, guys were 016 against a specific pitcher, but they're 300 lifetime hitters. Like, over 25 again, like one for 25 against the elite pitcher, but the 300 hitters overall, like they just haven't found a way to practice that specific task, that spin, that angle. Like if, if that makes sense, like that pitcher is just unique enough for them. And even on the flip side, even, even non elite pitchers, even guys who like get shelled by everybody else, but like just have that one guy's number, right? Like what is the reason? Like how many, how much of that is like after over 12, the guy just walks up there and assumes he's going to get out. Like he just had 12 bad at bats or maybe four of them were pissed on and like they just got caught and then it just ends up being over 12 and he's like, Oh, this guy just has my number. I'm not going to get a hit tonight. And he's over four again. He's like, see, yep. No. Nope. And then it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we're like, Nope, it's still your elbow. Like it's still that. Like, <laughs> no, like, like, let, like, and that's, I think that's the biggest difference between research development and player development, right? Like, like player development is always broad, all constantly broad. There's so many different things in research and development. We can be like, we can be like this one little thing is a KPI. And then we have to look at that from a player development standpoint and like find a way to scale it and make it matter. And it's Mm -hmm. like that KPI, is it really like that big of a thing for this particular guy? So it might be a huge thing for that guy. It might mean nothing for this guy. Mm -hmm. 
I, dude, I think you bring up some awesome points and some awesome things to talk about. It's like with that type of systems thinking, now that I think baseball is transitioning into where like everything is interconnected and interrelated that, that there's really, and, and sometimes there's independence of those components, right? Like you're saying, like maybe this variable was not really that connected to this variable or, or how this component connected to this one in that given circumstance, right? Like there's so many things that are just like interconnected and, and interacting with one another. And it's like, like if you, even if you were able to kind of like narrow it down to like one um, variable, like you would overfit the system almost like from an analytical standpoint. And if you were to practice that, then that wouldn't be effective for motor learning because you'd be practicing a highly specific problem and then trying to repeat that problem. So it's almost like, like, what do you even do with all of that? Like, even if you were to like narrow it down to that much, I mean, it's like, it'd be difficult to understand like really how to use that information. Um, maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe it does. Um, but in my mind, it'd almost be like you're overfitting the system almost like you would on an analytical side of things. And again, if you were to try to somehow like design a task with like all these circumstances, the weather is this, the, the pitcher spin direction is this, the spin rate is this, like it, he's, he's, he's hitting 12 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. The crosswind. It's like, like, so you're telling me that a crosswind left-handed pitcher with, uh, 2,200, uh, RPM spin rate and like all this other, uh, characteristics. And like, you kind of rebuild that problem. And it's almost like, what are you going to do with that? I mean, um, but, uh, yeah, I guess all that to kind of say that I think baseball, um, at least from, from my perspective is, is kind of moving into that direction where we're not seeing things in a silo or in a vacuum. We're understanding that like what information is a hitter connecting to what, what, uh, um, opportunities for action existed with that, with that pitch or, you know, like what other constraints are kind of acting on that hitter? Is he, is he nervous because his parents are in the stands? Um, and that's one thing I wanted to kind of finish with and ask you like uh, that, that uh, constraint is so important to motor learning, the more emotional or psychological um, side of learning. But I really don't know um, how to incorporate that component into a task um, like, and I've heard people talk about, like, if, if you're in a facility, maybe just ask the hitters, um, family to get more involved, especially if making them proud makes a difference in how they perform. It's almost like I had just heard the story about Teddy Bridgewater. I think, um, I think he was uh, performing the combine or, or some workout and they brought his parents in and immediately they could tell that he was nervous. So like, how do you like design tasks that would almost like affect them from a psychological state. And that's kind of what I ask you guys if you have ideas on that. So Steve Johnson's, I think really, really good at this. Um, like Ignatian guy, if you guys follow him, I think you guys I think you do chat or think you know, like all stuff. Um, we, uh, Nate actually was messaging him on Instagram, um, a couple years ago. And he basically said like, they try to create as, as much of an anxiety portal in their cage. And I think that's where we kind of got like some of our, even just over the top, like failure stuff. Right. Because Drew Saylor came on, um, he's the hitting coordinator for the Royals. He came on and did a presentation with us and he talked about like, um, like gap training and like 
if you're having basically if you're having 90% success rate, like it's too 100% to 90% success rate is too easy. And then you kind of like walk down to like success rates and like where the sweet spot for like training is without making people like want to quit and like hate their life. But on the flip side, for us, like we want to incorporate some of that stuff where they're like so scared they're going to break their bat. They're so terrified of um, even just like swinging hard because they're going to cap one and do whatever. Like, right. So I'm talking like stuff with the strobes on. We got the quad strobes and, you know, like they're hitting off high velos and sliders and like stuff that looks like it's going to come at them with the strobes. And like, sometimes I won't even tell them I'm throwing a slider. Like I'll just point the machine at them. They have the strobes on. They don't really notice the ball comes out. Like it's going to about to like, looks like it's going to hit them and just cuts. Right. Cause like machine three wheel machines are cool. Um, you know, and they're like jumping out of the way and it's like a strike down the middle. I'll like take your strobes off. Look, dude, that's a strike down the middle. Like, what are we doing? Like what, what that looked like it was coming right at me. I'm like, yeah, take a breath and calm down, figure it out. Like, you know, like Chad, you always say like, figure it out. And so they're like, Oh my God, you're not really gonna make me hit off this. Like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, I am. Like, what do you, like you have, you have 30 more minutes left. Like you better figure it out. And so then, you know, they, they're like, you know, they're freaking out. But even if they don't get anything really productive physically out of that, when they take the strobes off and I put on just like 94, like on the outer half with like a little bit of ride, like they're calm. They found a way like, Oh, thank God. It's just 94, like upper outer third. Like, thank God with like spin. Like, thank God. That's all it is. I'm like, no, that's like what Garrett Cole throws. Like he might be like 98. Like, but like that, that's like, like that's where Garrett Cole is attacks lefties. <laughs> like, you know, like from that aspect, like you're, you're calm facing Garrett. Oh, I didn't think about it like that. I'm like, yeah, like that's the whole point of this. And then it turns into the next time. Hey, how can we make it harder? I want to be calm against like the strobes and the sliders. And they take a breath and then we're like, yeah, I don't that at some point, like I just run out of ideas, but from an anxiety standpoint, like just getting their, you know, I think it's the vagus nerve that like runs through your spine. It's the fight or flight nerve, basically just training that nerve against different stimuli. And then you, t- you factor in the emotional state with like your parents and stuff. And like, I don't have a great answer for you on that, but from an anxiety standpoint, like I think if we can just figure out how to make our vagus nerve be like calm, like then everything can play better. Um, on how, that valuable, how valuable, Ryan, it, would, is it to, and I think Nick and I have talked about this, maybe we haven't, but it's, I've had it on my mind of, of like taking them up, okay, so like you got the, you got the strobes, you got the sliders, and then you take them, you take them off, and you got the 94 on the, you got the 94 on the, like, Garrett Cole style, and then like taking them down, taking them back down, and like, Hey man, I'm gonna throw you like some two OBP right down the middle, you know, because yeah, like hitters need to feel good. Like there is that element of like you can't just beat them down all like like that's something I've always struggled with. It's like your practice has got to be hard, and it's something that that lately I've been thinking about. It's like like at the end, at the very end, maybe not doing the thing that's most productive for them, but like at least they feel good, you know, moving on. It's not like they leave every day with like, God, I am absolutely awful. Like I am so bad. Uh-huh. You know? I, I, dude, I, I totally agree with you. I think there's got to be a balance. And I think some days it's good for them to leave feeling bad. Like sure. I think from that but aspect. I don't feel they, sorry for them at all every day. But like that's right. the Sundays I've been doing with, with Evan. Nick is like, we kind of go through our, what we're going to do, you know, and we'll mix it up and, long back, short bat angles. And then, then I'll kind of just like throw them around and be like over, just overhand. Like, all right, we're going to crank the machine on. 
and we're going to hit the machine for three or four rounds, and then we'll turn the machine off, and I'll just throw you like a 2-0 round. So we mm-hmm. burn the ball up, and whatever yeah. you feel after that. Because you know how Evan is. He's super fragile anyway. Like, he's so fragile. Mm-hmm. He is like, more mentally tough, but, like, if, if he doesn't feel good sometimes, he's just going to, like, shell up, and you're never going to get anything out of it. You know what? I, I really do want to compliment you on that because you do a good job of like on the fly adjusting and I can get into a pattern of trying to make it um, like, like almost not, I wouldn't say highly structured, but like, I like that organization. Okay. We're going to progress this way, but like, it, you know, it's more so um, than, than probably ever. Um, I'm realizing that, you know, how much of a skill that is, to be able I told to, you, like, I don't need to structure BP. Like, yeah, ride it in there, and then on the fly, we just do different stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I just ride it. In, I just ride it in their track, and then just do it. Yeah, because on the team setting, like at, at you know the college I'm working for, like there really isn't that um, option to adjust on the fly. I think it's just whatever it is, it is. So it's like it's it's a great concept that I love. Um, and, and kind of getting back to what the, the meat potatoes of what you were talking about was like that, like almost that contextual interference, like, like how much of the task that we actually scale, right? Like, cause we were, had seen like Evan's vertical jumps were, were going down and his, um, swing speeds were going down his exit velocity. And we're just like, maybe we need to take some, some load off. And then, and we, and we did, and it really didn't help. Um, I think he was still kind of like neutralized there. And so we took off some, some context, so to speak, we kind of just like cut some context off of the, the task. And then, then now he feels relaxed. He feels confident again, and he's coming back the next day excited. And so I kind of like navigating that as a coach is, I would say is, is a great skill. Yeah. I mean, I think I've done it both ways with the machine even too, like, the gradually like moving them up and like turning saying like, Hey, you're going to face like, you know, 70, like it's going to be like a 70 mile an hour fastball. It's going to be kind of down the middle. Like, you know, it's, it's just, it's just hard can. yeah. Right. And so then I'll move it up to like 71, 72. And like, they really don't change. They might miss the first one, but they adjust pretty quickly after that. Cause it's a small, small gap. You know, they just feel like a little bit late. Then I'll be 74. And then like by the end of the session, they're crushing like 85 and like, they don't really know the difference. And um, you know, I've done it the opposite way too. We're like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, what's that? I've done it the opposite way too. Yeah. Just start really fast. They're not going to hit it anyway. Yeah. And then you, and you don't tell them you're slowing it down. Like you're not saying like, Oh, you know what? You needed to be slower today. You weren't very good with the high below. At the end of the day, it's like a high five being like, dude, you crushed it. Awesome. And like, they know that they started at whatever speed they had it on. And if I turn the machine off while I pick up balls and I know they're going to be behind there, like, you know, just click turn the thing back up to 85, like, I, you know, whatever it is. And obviously like being real with a player and knowing their age, like the older they are, the more real I want to be with them. But I also want them to like, understand what your point is, is like, they got to feel good. And if they feel good, they're going to hit better. If they hit better then that's our goal, you know, from that aspect. So, um, but yeah, young players, like we got to you know figure out creative ways to make them feel like they're accomplishing hard stuff and that they're moving up in the world. They're not just doing the same thing every time. Like they're progressing through the program. Hey, Ryan, I wanted to ask you, and I don't know that you can completely answer it being that there might be some things that you can't like disclose, 
Um, but inside of a pro organization and, um, and specifically a team setting, how do you design individual tasks like that daily, um, within the 16 and or however many hitters you have on a roster? Um, I'm sure maybe that they each have an individual plan and within that plan, they have different tasks or drills. How do you kind of like, you know, navigate that in like day to day? Um, I think the biggest thing is just kind of like, you know, Chad, you mentioned it, like you write it in there, right? So you structure a basic, you structure basic time slots and then each player has got to know what they're, they've got to be professional. They've got to know what they're supposed to be working on. They've got to know their list of drills. And some of those are going to be drills that they get from their facilities that they train at and wherever, you know, like pro guys that you guys train probably take some of those drills and do them with their pro teams, even if their pro teams don't agree or, you know, things like that. So, I mean, we've got plenty of that. I mean, we've got guys who really believe in what they do. And I'm, I've said it a lot of times and I think belief is really powerful. So like, cool, do that drill. Awesome. I'm good with it. But I also think you should maybe try this one. And so having a hybrid of, of things that they want to do and, and what we want them to do in their structured time slots. So if we've got T work structured, that's basically like our warm up time, right? Like just, okay, open T's, go do what you want to do. Like I, I don't really structure T work at all. Um, and then it's like, okay, we've got X amount of time with X amount of hitters in cages, one through whatever, you know, make sure that like our flip rounds are this many, you know, this many minutes, you get this many swings and then trying to somewhat structure their reps just to keep it, everything moving in line. Um, and then the other side of it is just making like having different time slots, you know, and, and having, giving guys individual attention. Um, but it just comes down to or being organized. Um, and then I don't know if I'm really answering your question, you know, very specifically, but if you, if you can do that, I know it's more difficult at the college level because of you're limited by the hours that players can be, can be coached. Um, but then I think it just comes down to like prioritizing like what you want them to work on, um, you know, whether you guys are going to work on creating runs, stopping runs, um, things like that, and how you're going to balance your priorities as a staff. And that's, again, like why we play, because other colleges have the same rules, and they're trying to prioritize what's important to them in order to try to beat you guys on the field and vice versa. So, um, Is that uh, early work that you're referring to, or is that another block of time? I would say early work, yeah. I mean, for me personally, like I think traditional BP is like slowly changing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, early work and then cage time would be – you know, and obviously at home and on the road, it's going to be different um, from that aspect. And that was something that even like our strength coach and I were trying to navigate, like what are hitting drills and what are weight room drills and when should hitting coaches take over some of the movement stuff and when should they not um, and things like that. So it's just, it just really comes down to like, I guess, being organized in that side of things. And then also having the player, like having an onboarding process, right? Like I'm sure you guys and Chad, you mentioned it where like your older players can kind of guide your younger players through like what the program is, right? Like they know like, okay, this yeah. is how we warm up. This yeah. is how I love that. I love giving player ownership to everything that we do. Like, I don't, I don't really want to do, I don't really want to step in unless I have to. And I think player ownership is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Like at the pro level, there's not, you don't always have that, right? Because especially oh, for me, yeah, what's that? I'm sure not. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's for, yeah. And I mean, for me, like even coming in, like having some new ideas, um, I mean, the, the staff with the coaching staff we have is awesome, um, you know, for the most part. Um, you know, so it's, it's one of those things where they've got to be on board first to like, 
display the information. Like one person can't control 86 guys. So having like your staff on board and then having those like that staff on board, like be able to start to onboard their hitters. And that's going to come with like mini camps. That's going to come really. That's, that's a lot where the onboarding come happens. Like mini camps, instructional league, getting a core group of players, like slowly integrated first, doing like an early spring training type mini camp where you get the next wave of players. And then when everybody comes now, you're like, okay, we've got all the coaches on board. We've got a bunch of players on board. Now we've got to figure out how to get the rest of the people that are in this wave, like in line with everybody else, you know, on that aspect, which is definitely a challenge. It's something that for us got cut short. So I can't talk on it too much just because of, you know, everything that happened and getting sent home. But, um, that would be like my answer for that is it all just comes down to building a system and, um, and being organized and and what you want to do and understanding like your priorities. And that's, that's like anything else, right? Like it's like what we talked about earlier, like, are we just coming up with a solution? Um, just because we have to pass the time and we know that we want hitters to get swings and we have to like coach them or are we trying to like have, are we trying to move the needle specifically, you know, in player development for our hitters? And are we trying to do it in a way that helps us maintain relationships at a, at a, at a peak level? Um, and I think those are two very different things because we're working backwards from trying to score more runs, trying to add more value to our prospects, trying to do all these different things versus just like, okay, Hey, Holy crap. we got 86 guys. I want everybody out of here by one o'clock figure out like how we just make them active and, and get working. You know, I think those are two very different questions. Yeah. I, I want to um, highlight something you mentioned there at the end, Ryan, cause I think that's a um, really important piece. And, and uh, I think you could probably answer this pretty well. Like um, given that um, pro context, how do you like balance that like prescriptive versus more, um, um, exploration type of, or self-organization, I'll I'll kind of paint it that way instead, more self-organization versus like prescriptive, like, because these guys got to perform, right. And they, they have so much time a day. And, um, so like, I would imagine that that would be really difficult, um, to just like, and it kind of, just for example, like me, like doing this and this, like, I'm not giving the hitter any answers. Like he come back three weeks from now and still not have that answer. And I'm not going to give it to him. It's like, how do you like, it doesn't shock me at all that neither one of them paid any attention to what you were doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like how, like how long before I have to give them the answer. And that's just one very small example, but like they got to perform at some point, like, if that's, if that's part of the solution, then like, I mean, at what point do you just tell them, you know, like, is that, is that, is that a reasonable question? Is that something that you guys think about? Like, like yeah. time constraint, these guys have got performance. Yeah. The less time you have, the less questions you can ask. So like it all is based on, the amount of, for me anyways, in my personal opinion, and this is, this comes from even rich Benjamin and he gave me a whole book on this. It's called coaching for performance. And it's all about like how we don't actually, we shouldn't actually make statements when we're coaching almost ever, which Chad, I think, you know, you're really good at like just in general, which is something I've even have gotten better at knowing you and something that, you know, um, a guy I know Devin DeYoung's really, really good at, um, just asking questions instead of ever making statements. And so, the less time you have though, the more you have to have your create your statement and that your statement should just come from your strong belief system in that moment, trying to help that player and move the needle. doesn't mean you're going to be right, 
It just means that like you're working under a time constraint and having the player age probably matters where their, their background plot probably matters. Like a lot of stuff matters when you're trying to call it time, like how, and you're trying to dictate how much or trying to figure out how much time you have. Um, but then there's some players that like, if you don't have, if you don't have an answer for them or you don't have like a really good mm-hmm. plan within like the first two minutes of talking with them, like you're going to lose them forever. They're going to think you're full of it. So yeah. like, especially guys at, at the, at the major league level who are like, yeah, so what do you got on this? And they've kind of got their own idea formulated in their head. They're kind of quizzing you kind of seeing it's like, yeah, well you didn't have fastballs upper third, you know, any, you know, at all last year. I mean, anything above 94, you hit 0.078 on and, you know, up in the zone in that quadrant. So either a, you should not swing at it anymore or B, we need to like address it. Like from that aspect, and they're like, Oh wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's not like what you, that I struggled there. Like, yeah, let me show you the numbers and the data. Like, I, I know you're like, and you're not pulling up a computer. This is all like research and homework you've done, right? Like now you're, now you're, now they're like, whoa, like this guy's prepared. This guy's organized. Like now, okay, maybe. And then you can start asking questions, right? You know, from yeah. that aspect, but that stems from like a statement, like that. right? So bad at that. And so, um, you remember people's names. Like, I've... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but dude, like that brings up another good point, and that's kind of been on my mind too, as especially with players that you're referring to in professional baseball. Like you had mentioned that earlier in the conversation about like um, giving answers versus um, the questioning approach, and and you know a lot of my like more formal education, it just it it really recommends more the questioning, right? Like don't, don't give them the answers. Don't give them the solution. Just kind of question and let them kind of self-organize. And it's like, like with those guys, like how, if they want answers, but you, what you believe is this constructivist approach where you're not going to give them answers. It's almost like how you just kind of, you just kind of, just, I guess, um, just kind of give them what they want and just kind of give them answers, I guess just to kind of like build that, that relationship to express um, your skill and your knowledge, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I think it just depends on if you want the player to think, I mean, okay. So I have, I have a player named AJ Gill who is, was exactly like that. Like he, he got so pissed off because I literally asked him probably 50 plus questions to like in a text thread he wanted like me to just give him the answer. He's like, dude, why are you asking me so many questions? Like, give me the answer. Like, yeah. you know, like from that aspect. And, um, I was like, cause that's not helping you. Like that's like, that's not, and he's like, all right, we'll just give it to me. And like, was mad. I was like, all right, well, here's what I personally think. And then like, just to be a smart ass, like I was like, but what about this? Right. And like, mm-hmm. totally, like, which would like make you assume like the polar opposite. And so trying to guide into those things and, you know, you know, he's the, appreciates it more now on that aspect of things. Cause like he understands like what I was trying to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would give him the answer and then say like, well, okay, well, what about this? And mm-hmm. I'd be like, yeah, man, it's not black and white. Like convincing them that there's a gray area and that it's not black and white. I think that just comes down to context. Just like telling someone to swing up or swing down. If you heard Barry Bonds, the best hitter of all time, tell you should chop wood. Like you should probably, like you would probably chop wood if that's all you ever heard. And then I come along, I've never played professional baseball. Like I don't even have cool DVD stories like Chad. And I'm like, no, like, dude, you, you definitely should have a positive attack angle. I promise you. Like that's, he's gonna be like, huh? Like, no, Barry Bond says swing down. So if my only, I'm like, okay, well then my question would be like, well, where does the ball come from? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, wh- if I, if I square up the ball evenly on plane, 
Like I'm still hitting a ground ball. Okay. So now I have to have the question of like, do I want to clip it underneath on the same plane? Okay. Well, what's that going to do to the ball? It's going to, it's going to create it's on the backspin. Okay. Well, what, what do you, we know about like just direction, like backspin in general, like do you want to hit like long fly balls to like warning track, you want to be slightly under the plane, really square up and hit it hard. Oh man, I didn't think about that. Okay. Well, like now let's talk about feel versus real. Cause what if you feel like you're doing that, but you're actually coming way too far underneath it and you're dipping your back shoulder and you're late all the time. And you can't catch up the high heat. Oh crap, man. Like, so I should chop down. Like I didn't say that. Like, I want you to understand like your feel versus real. And I want you to understand like where all this context comes from. And so I think like you're not necessarily trying to create coaches. You're trying to create good thinkers. And hopefully when they're done playing the game, like you've helped them like empower other people too. like you've helped them be better as lame as not, not lame, but as cliche as it sounds like be husbands and fathers. Right. Like, you know, from that, from that side of things. Mm-hmm. It does appeal to Nick a lot. Like I make fun of the things that Nick says sometimes. And, and I'd say, look, man, like sometimes I just, I know that you don't believe some of the, these words, but like when in Rome, you, you have to act like a Roman. And if a guy, wants an answer and you don't want to give it to him, maybe you should just give it to him and then work back to what you want to do afterwards, you know, work backwards from just give him what he wants. And then you'll be able to get back to what you want eventually. Mm-hmm. Well, well, once he trusts you, he's going to trust your methods. But like if he wants an answer and you don't give it to him, he's not going to trust you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I get that. And I think that's a great, that's a great answer because like, uh, in the beginning, it's all about relationship, right? Relationship precedes all results. And if you want to have those future conversations and future, um, I guess, practice designs with that, that those players, then I think you probably have to give them a little bit of more of what they want. Um, just to kind of formulate that, that, uh, relationship. I, I did want to ask a, a, also yeah, one more question, Nick. One more. That's it. One more. Okay. We're going to keep you to an hour and a half. We're like an hour and 45. Okay. Um, just real quick. This we'll do part two, like Rachel. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This would be a quick one. Um, so I'm not, I won't ask like what his favorite Avengers movie is. I guess you can ask that one. No, um, I, do, I do have a closing statement though. Okay. Uh, so from, from a coaching standpoint, I know like in my world, like in college baseball, um, like, uh, I guess like, like it, it, there's there's obviously like two art of like paradigms or, or camps of thought when it comes to like um, motor learning like the idealized movement patterns versus like the more like um, self-organization movement solutions like again so there's like different like types of teaching that but like when I'm in a college setting and I have a coach who utilizes more of the traditional approach it's like technique first and then I'm over here and I start with the tactic first I don't start with the technique like I guess I'm not asking like if you see that a lot of people, I guess I'm asking like, um, should that like, is, should that be something to worry about? Like, um, and, and how do you like, how would you like navigate that? If like, if it did exist in pro ball where one coach is approaching it from a technical first, and then you're approaching it from more of like the problem first, like, how do you kind of like have that conversation with, uh, with coaches and players if you've been in there? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, the first thing to do is, is have a conversation as a staff, right? Like that's the, that's step one. So are you saying like this happens after you guys have decided on like an organizational philosophy? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, that would, that would make a lot more sense. Like if you haven't had those meetings, then, um, I would say that, um, that wouldn't, uh, then it could happen more if you've had not, have not had those meetings. So, okay. So then I would say like, where do you have a bigger platform to help players? Um, maintaining a role where players know that you're a really good, really good assistant to the coach. You believe in the organization's, you know, philosophies, maybe you've got some different ideas, but for the general, the general idea, like, can you share your ideas in an auxiliary way that still is beneficial, right? Outside of just like, uh, just still beneficial in your belief system without totally burying you know, the head coaches or some, another coach, you know, in the process. Cause last thing you want to do in that aspect is say, Hey, like we need to focus on tasks first and provide a ton of context and make like half the team be like, you're the best. And then half the team is like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about and vice versa. Cause now you've got to split, like the players don't know who to trust. So I think the first thing is to find a way to navigate the language and the organizational philosophy within what you want to do. Right. So if it's technique first, then find a way to, to incorporate technique first, even if it's a, even if it's in a different way, but use that phrase. Like if you're using that phrase and then talking about tasks and then you can slowly start to, as you get results, like, like people are going to ask you more questions about what you're doing, why you're doing it that way. And if you can kind of speak their language to me, that would be, to me, that'd be the best way to, to kind of go about that. Um, obviously with a staff of what, four or five, you know, at the college level, and that's with a bunch of volunteers and grad assistants and maybe people who don't have so much pull as like the head coach and the hitting coach, um, you know, versus at the pro level, you've got a lot of different personalities, and a lot of different ideas, but it's a little different at the pro level too. Cause some people it's, some people assume it's a hierarchy and it shouldn't necessarily be that way of what they have to teach and what they have to believe in. Um, Sometimes, not all the time, but yeah, I mean, I think the, just in general, if you could speak their language and just understand that you have a, you have a bigger platform from, from to help players in general from, from strength in the organization and strength in numbers versus being like a rogue guy, helping like three guys that one year and then getting pushed out of the org because like you go against everything that they, that they said, right? Like you might have, you might have the best success and turn these three guys careers around, but that might be like going through guys you really get a chance to work with. So I think being a really good assistant, it's just going to help you be a better leader too. When, when you have a program that you've got a strong belief system and one of your assistants doesn't believe in you. Right. And some of that side, and maybe it's not a head coach assistant thing. Maybe it's just, you know, one of the volunteers or grad assistants or things. I don't know exactly what scenario you're describing, but that to me is how can you learn to be the best assistant possible while slowly starting to incorporate, you know, your belief system. So that way you have, a bigger platform over the course of the years and playing the long game versus playing the short game and helping like three players in your one way that you believe in right now. Yeah. That makes it might not have been the answer you were looking for. It's kind of, you know, it's very diplomatic, but, um, I guess that would be my, my answer. On, on that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, uh, if Chad would let me, I'd get a little bit longer, but no, that was good. The, yeah. The only reason Nick, the only reason that Ryan really likes me at all, just because I played against Hunter Pence one time. <laughs> well, I, I I am a little bummed that we didn't get to tell any Hunter Pence stories on this call, but that so part two has to happen. That's that's a cliffhanger. <laughs> so Nick, I don't know if you've ever heard me tell this story, but there's this guy named Hunter Pence that plays for the Legends. It's got like 
600 homers in the first half of the season. We go to play them. We haven't played them yet. We go to play them. Thinking to myself, good grief, what in the world am I getting my, we're getting ourselves into? You think you're going to go in, you're going to see this guy that's like, just, you know, like the LeBron James of baseball that's got all these homers in the side league. So he's like third up and he gets in the on deck circle and this hunchback guy goes out there and he takes these crazy practice swings. And I'm not playing that day because I never played, but I'm in the dugout. I'm like, what is that? Like, what, what the crap is this guy doing? And then he goes out and he hits like six homers in the series. And I'm like, and everything I thought I knew, I know. <laughs> what just happened is this, this guy with this hunchback just absolutely annihilated baseballs. And he's still playing, I think. Yeah. But it all started from my mind being blown from this guy's on deck swings that I still don't, to this day don't understand. So, hey, so actually, uh, at this past year, so Charlie Romero's our double-A hitting coach, and he had him in winter ball, and he asked him why he does that. And this is, this is, this is why. And it was so eye-opening to me. Hunter Pence, as good of a career as he, as he has had, and as strong mentally, you know, he's the guy with the bug eyes and just, yeah. like, just this weird dude that you just assume is, like, really mentally, like, tough and strong and things like that. And I'm sure he is, right? But he does that so he doesn't tinker with his mechanics in the on-deck circle. He doesn't want to, like, work on his timing where, like, he gets up and on time and then, like, it's like, oh, whoa, like, my elbow felt weird or my hands are in the wrong spot. And yeah. then he goes up to the batter's box and is like, uh-oh, like, I need to be – I just didn't feel right. So he purposely does these weird swings to think nothing about his mechanics so he can just go to the box and hit. And that's what he told Charlie in winter ball because Charlie asked him. And that was like – I was like – when I was pumped too. Like I automatically love Charlie because he had on our Pence story. So, you know, that was that was a great, you know, introduction to him. <laughs> um, I didn't know what my whole world was in that like. aspect. Wow. But uh, – <laughs> Um, but yeah, my last, the last thing about Hunter Pence is when I, in 2014, um, this guy came to Judson university, small Christian school in Elgin. And he's like, you know, really good buddies with, with rich Benjamin, the head coach there. And he's, he's at the time he's a Yankee scout. And he tells me the story about Hunter Pence and Gary Sheffield. And like, they're down in Florida, the spring training complex and Gary Sheffield's like hitting with Dominic Brown, who doesn't play anymore. I don't know if you guys remember Dominic Brown's with the Phillies. And he's like, they're just trying to like, like, you know, work on mechanics and stuff like that. And Donald Brown just like spikes him off the tee, like hits the tee, like just to Hunter Pence goes and like shakes his head. And he's like, huh? Like Gary, Gary looks at him, like keeps doing it. keeps working with like on mechanics with Dominic Brown, no real good results. Hunter Pence just hitting like missiles down, like just in the cage over just rockets shaking his head. Gary's like, Hey Hunter, like what the heck, man? Like what, why do you keep shaking your head at me? And he's like, dude, I don't even think about mechanics. I just try to hit as hard as I can. Like reach back rocket. So I hear that story and this dude hits me up on Twitter this like couple weeks ago. And he's like, Hey man, like got to do a zoom call. Like, you know, want to, you know, want to, want to do this. And so we go through this whole talk. We talk about force plates, you know, whatever, things like this. And at the end of it, he's like, Hey, you know, I, 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 I think about mechanics this way. I've got this great hundred pence story. He tells me that story. And it turns out it was the same guy in 2014 who told me that story again. I was like, dude, if, did you tell that story in 2014 at Judson University? He was like, yeah. I was like, dude, I was listening. I was like, you know, I was like an assistant coach there. And I love that story. I've been telling that story for six years. Like literally I've been telling that story for six years. So like hitters about like how to just have a tent and like drive the baseball. I was like, that's awesome. Like dude, small world. Anyways, it's, you know, whatever. But that's, uh, 
like crazy. I never knew who that guy was. I just knew he was like a Yankee scout. And it turns out like, you know, we ended up like connecting like years down the road. And I only knew it was him because he told the story again. It's like a movie. <laughs> he's, he's instantly like top 10 now for me from that. Scene. I love it, dude. It, it, yeah. awesome. It's great. So he's but, one of my uh, favorites just because he looks weird and in, in his match for like 15 years. <laughs> but, Chad, I still have you telling that story on my phone uh, recorded from the, the last ABCA we were at um, in that big lobby where, where Mark was there and Brock Hammett came up. And yeah. I, think, I think John Lampros was, was in attendance there for, for a little yeah. bit and some really good dudes. But um, you're just like you're like so exhausted from the day, like sound spinners and weighted bats. And you're just like sitting in your chair and just like, oh, so yeah, 100 pence. <laughs> you go, it's, it's like the best five-minute video I have on my phone. <laughs> It's still, it's still, I still don't know. I still don't know what happened there. That Lexington, he hit the farthest homer I've ever seen in person. <laughs> that series in Lexington, seriously. Uh, you play Lexington? Did you go to Lexington? Yeah. Oh, our our head coach and our hitting coach got kicked out this year. I had to, I was like the like I got to coach third and like had to like decide on like when to bunt and stuff. So obviously we never did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that. Just permanent green light, no three oh takes. Just, uh-huh. yeah. the ball, like I don't know if the, the maker's mark ball is still there. If it is, he hit it over the maker's mark ball, over the trees behind the maker's mark. What happened was like it was getting ready to monsoon and this storm like is blowing in. So the wind is blowing out like forty miles an hour. And he comes up, probably a three-one count. Our guy just throws one down the middle. I mean, if the ball didn't go five hundred feet, I've never seen a five hundred feet homer because it went over. I mean, it went over the trees easily with the wind blowing out forty miles an hour after these weird swings. I mean, it was awesome. He's the best. All right, dude. All right, guys. Well, hey, thanks for having me out. I'll have to do part two. Um, Appreciate the invite. Always, always a pleasure. Yep. Yeah. And we'll talk soon. We'll get right. on. We'll get some hype on the next one. Yeah, we'll have to get Chase and Nate on together. We'll have double hype. Yeah. Your hype man's better than mine, though. <laughs> I'm the best hype man in the country. I'm, I don't know what to tell it's you. Same place to everybody, though. It, it's okay. I'm third best coach to my wife and Nate in my facility, so yep. you know I gotta have I gotta have something. Yeah. All right, dude. See you guys. See All you. right. See ya. See you, Nick. See you, Chad. Bye.